Good evening and um, welcome to Have We Got Planning News For You. Uh, we're looking forward to um, showing you our interview later on with uh, Welsh Minister for Climate Change and Housing, Julie James. Uh, we we pre-recorded the interview last uh, week, uh, given the Minister's busy schedule. There may be one or two references that are out of date because it's been a slightly complicated week in politics. And by the way, these aren't devil's horns. Uh, the Minister suggested that we uh, had as our theme uh, hometowns. And as you'll find out, uh, I've chosen the Birmingham Bull. Unfortunately, when I chose this, I didn't appreciate that if I sit in the middle of the thing, it just looks like I'm Satan. Uh, I'm sure that's entirely a coincidence. Uh, anyway, um, talking of talking of famous Satanists, Paul, how are you doing? I'm very well, Charlie. How are you? I'm extremely well. Uh, where are you? Have you blurred out the background because you're in a car park again? Uh, I, 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 I don't say that. Oh, you are. <laughs> <laughs> how did I guess? It's the grand reveal. Uh, no, I've just finished an inquiry in Hartsmere and uh, about to head to the uh, to the cold north. Um, uh, so I've had nothing to drink. So I'm just drinking water today. But cheers, nice to see you, Good my lord Satan. <laughs> Mary, how are you? Good afternoon, everyone. Hello, Mary Cook, Town Legal, and I'm sitting here having my lovely cup of Yorkshire tea in the Town Legal offices. Fantastic, great to see you, and Chris. How are you doing? You're looking unfamiliar, unfamiliar surroundings. Dare I say, slightly less grand than your usual location. Well, if you if you just look out behind me, you can see the epicenter of Tory panic because I'm in Amersham, <laughs> and in the planning world, that just means chaos. Not that there's not a bit of chaos, obviously, already uh, in the Tory party. Um, no, I'm here at Amersham in an inquiry for a site in Beaconsfield, instructed by. Uh, uh, Mike Davis, and uh, we're in front of David Rose, who is always a superbly charming inspector. Excellent. Uh, thanks, thanks very much, Chris. And Sasha's stuck in the inquiry, but going to be joining us um, shortly. And I should have said, of course, at the beginning, the usual call to arms to please consider making your usual charity donation um, to um, either one of our uh, nominated charities, Shelter, Brian May Save Me, um, or the Ukraine GoFundMe page, or, of course, the local charity of your, your choice. Um, now we're going to go straight to the case reports, because um, as I said, the guest is um, uh, is going to be with us in the second half of the show via our pre-recorded segment. So we're going to start, um, Chris, with a case appeal decision from Bolton that you're going to cover. We are. We are. It's uh, a decision of uh, Inspector Hartley. Uh, I don't know if Rob can bring up the, uh, the details of the screen. And um, uh, what we've got is uh, a proposal... Uh, by Bellway Homes in respect of um, uh, uh, a CS inevitably going to be developed. It's the site that's other protected lands uh, in the Bolton allocation plan. And um, it was common ground that the whole of the appeal site fell within these areas, but also that they didn't fall into any of the categories where development might be, um, might be uh, allowed. So... Um, it's a significant development when you look at all the different phases that are proposed, uh, phases three, four and five um, on top of an existing development site. Now, there's a huge amount here about landscape and design. What I wanted to focus on was just um, the issue of coalescence. I don't know if we've got a photograph of the site, um, but uh, there's a coalesc coalescence issue between um, Dob Brow. These are places that Paul will know. Dobrow and West Horton. And um, the area was the subject of um, 
appeal for all of these sites. And the inspector raises this issue about coalescence. So paragraph 25, he says, at the inquiry, there was a considerable discussion about whether the proposals would result in coalescence of Dobrow and West Horton, the rest of West Horton. I have to say, I don't even see that. I can't see any gap at all, such there'd be coalescence. They're all part of the same settlement, which is pretty much what the inspector took the view. At 25, furthermore, in my view, the passerby perceives Dobrow as being contiguous with the rest of West Horton. I find that it's not a discrete and separate area, notwithstanding the views expressed by the council's witness at the inquiry. Um, it's a set, a, a, relating to separate access and nearby open land and vegetation. I have to say, I just can't see the coalescence point there at all. It is all part of the same settlement. Anyway, the inspector went on to consider it. Paragraph 26 uh, said he considered the form and the density and the setting of the existing settlement. Um, but uh, he said in the second sentence, while the proposals would result, in some infilling and extension of the existing consented settlement to West Orton, I do not find the development as a whole would seek to erode an important separate, separate function between the urban areas. Put another way, he said, I do not consider the proposals would in fact lead to coalescence of discrete urban areas. And he made reference to uh, coalescence in the council's planning documents. And then finally, paragraph 27 on this. This is quite interesting. Even if one were to disagree with my view about coalescence, a finding that the proposal would lead to coalescence would not, in this case, outweigh my overall conclusion in respect to the appeal proposals. And what he's saying there is, even if I'm wrong about that, I'd still have allowed this appeal, even if I thought there was coalescence. And that's a very sensible thing for inspectors to do in terms of um, insulating themselves against criticism if a different conclusion might have been reached. Um, the, there's only two other things I wanted to highlight. Um, street trees, they, they get mentioned. Paragraph 45, the inspector was uh, forced to consider the issue of whether there should have been street trees in the design. Now, you remember, if you go back a few Secretary of State, she comes to Robert Jenrick, and he was very keen on street trees and insisted that be put into the MPPF. So that's his lasting contribution to the British planning system. Uh, unless he makes a comeback, of course. Uh, I recognise that street trees, the inspector said, would not as such be provided throughout the development as a whole, but the appellant's design response has been drawn by highway authority adopted requirements. I'm satisfied that in respect of footnote 50 of paragraph 131 of the framework, clear, justifiable and compelling reasons were given by the appellant and in any event the evidence is there is scope to provide plentiful tree planting. So, when it's raised like that, the, the, what Robert Jendrick has done is made it necessary for decision makers to expressly state there is re exceptional reasons really why, or justifiable reasons, why street trees are not provided as part of the proposal. And then finally, just on this issue of the status of the land, paragraph six um, in the decision um, deals with the issue uh, of other protected land. And um, as you can see, that was the status of this land. Um, and then finally, the inspector's conclusion on that issue is contained uh, paragraph 69. He said, furthermore, the council confirmed at the inquiry, the OPL would be required to help boost the shortfall in the local planning authority's five-year land supply. There was no dispute. The council had only 3.3 years um, or 3.9 years between the parties, but well below four years. 
um, and the appeal site was the least sensitive of the APL sites in the area. So how did this appeal happen? You've got a uh, council that hasn't got a fiber land supply. You've got land that is potentially future development land. And you've got a council saying this is the least sensitive as a consequence of which, not surprisingly, the appeal was allowed. Well done to the appellant's team. That included uh, Paul's stablemate, uh, Giles Canuck, and um, well done to the rest of the team um, and uh, Nicola Jacob of, um, of Randall Thorpe um, was acting on the other side. But Jonathan Berry at Tyler Grange, uh, Simon Pemberton at Litchfields, well done. Uh, a good outcome. Thanks, Chris. I mean, there's quite a few major decisions on coalescence recently. The top one, if Fasher joins us in time, he was going to kind of also concern coalescence, Clappers Lanes and Chichester. There's one or two others as well. Um, it's always seemed to me a little bit strange when land isn't designated for an anti-coalescence reason, either in the local plan or as Greenbelt, um, as some sort of freestanding coalescence point. Always seemed to me to be a little bit curious as an in-principle showstopper in that situation. But there we go. Um I'm going to go next. Sasha was going to join us next, but uh, so he's still stuck in his inquiry, but hopefully will tell us about Topsham later. Um, and I'm going to deal um, fairly briefly, because it's quite a lengthy decision, with of the ref- well high-profile refusal uh, of uh, Inspector Katie McDonald to confirm a, a compulsory purchase order um, for the acquisition of land to facilitate the regeneration of the Vicarage Field area, including Vicarage Field Shopping Centre and adjacent uh, land uh, in, um, in Barking and Dagenham. Um, now, th- this was a scheme which had planning permission and an inspector found in her conclusions there was a compelling case for it, uh, extremely compelling case. It was wholly in accordance with the development plan. The shopping centre and the town centre overall needed redevelopment. It was the lowest ranking borough in London for poverty. This was the scheme that was the catalyst for regeneration. There were no realistic alternative proposals um, to the scheme. Um, and the inspector was completely aware that failing to confirm the CPO would lose the opportunity to comprehensively redevelop the site. And that the council staked its reputation on delivering it. So all of that, you must think, well, this is a no-brainer. Well, no, it was not, it was not a no-brainer. And she um she refused for, well, I dare say, a read like very coherent and compelling um reasons. And the reason was um viability. Um, the um, inspector noted that um, there was sufficient funding behind the CPA. There had been debate about whether the, the people, uh, the, the enti- commercial entities behind the um, the proposed development actually had the um, the funds to deliver it. And, and she found that they they did. But that wasn't enough because she found that no rational um, uh, commercial investor, no matter how much they invested so far, would in the circumstances invest more money to deliver the scheme if they weren't going to get an adequate return. That's obvious common sense, obviously right. Uh, and the difficulty was that the outline planning commission, the governing outline planning commission for this scheme, had been granted um, at a time when the viability appraisal for that scheme uh, had found um, the, the scheme to be substantially unviable. And the permission was granted full knowledge of that. Nothing wrong with granting a permission for unviable development in principle in most situations. Um, but of course, for CPO, it's different because you're taking someone's land. Um, extinguishing businesses in some instances and interfering with their rights. And if that's for a scheme that is pie in the sky and isn't going to happen, then there's not a compelling case. And um, the, um, the inspector found it unusual in the context of the lack of evidence, or the, in fact, the positive evidence of a lack of viability in the past, unusual and surprising that there wasn't an updated viability appraisal showing the scheme was still viable. Um, the, the authority had claimed, well, no one had taken a viability point. She wasn't very impressed by that um, plea 
it's the responsibility of the applying authority to provide the evidence to generate the compelling case in the in the public interest. The onus is on them. Again, that's plainly right. Um, and uh, even if um, there were commercial sensitivities, um, the inspector was impressed by David Elvin's uh, submission on behalf of one of the lead objectors, while the other ones was, of course, Chris, um, uh, that a updated appraisal could have been either redacted or, or subject to some kind of confidentiality ring, potentially even with just one expert seeing it on undertaking viability and commenting as a peer review whether or not there was indeed viability, uh, a viable scheme. Um, and that would have inspectors that have you provided independent and clear indication the scheme was viable. Um, so lesson learned. I mean, clearly that this means this this highly beneficial scheme isn't going to happen. Um, the reputation which the inspector said the council had staked uh, itself is clearly going to be affected by by the uh, failing, frankly, of, of the council to provide the evidence that it should have done. Um, I mean, being frank, embarrassing outcome for the council, um, but a lesson to, to be learned um, from, from that is if you're promoting a CPO, provide evidence that the scheme is viable and don't hide behind commercial confidentiality because there are workarounds. And, and if you if you take the risk, um, you may find that um, no matter how good the scheme is and how impressive the case is, um, you don't get your CPO confirmed. Now, very quickly, in a couple of sentences, one other case that you should be aware of, didn't quite make the cut, Arnold White Estates, a case about tree felling. Um, I wasn't must say, I wasn't completely aware that pretty much any felling of any substantial trees required a licence, it must be said. It's not really my field. Um, uh, but it turns out um, that, uh, generally speaking, it does. And if you get a licence um, in advance of your planning permission, uh, and generally speaking, in advance of either full permission or, or an RMA, uh, reserve matters, then like the Court of Appeals judgment, um, there's a real risk that um, implementing the planning permission will lead to a breach of the standard restocking conditions, which require replacement trees uh, to be um, put in place and maintained for 10 years. Um, and the Court of Appeal uh, rejected the argument that the planning permission overrides the conditions on a standard conditions on a felling license, which can't be changed. Um, so the lesson from that case, which is actually really important pragmatically, um, is if you are going to have to fell trees for a um, envisaged development, get your planning permission first and get indeed either full permission or reserve matters first before you uh, apply for felling license, because if the felling of the trees is necessitated by the planning permission and you haven't got a license already, you'll get an exemption from the license. But if you get the license first and the planning permission afterwards, the permission doesn't trump the license. So it's about sequencing. Get your permission first and then your felling license. Um, so it is, is resolvable, um, but but it, it care needs to be taken. Um, and um, finally, I should say the, the barking case, you want to hear more, Raj Gupta, Mary's colleague at Town Legal, has posted a series of very interesting and detailed blogs about that available on LinkedIn and the Town Legal website. And with that, if we haven't got Sasha, uh, Mary, over to you. Um, and you're going to tell us about a case in Chris's hometown of Cheltenham. Indeed I am. Indeed I am. This is an appeal against non-determination by Robert Hitchens in respect of their application for 250 homes at a place called Harp Hill. And this is an unusual um, inquiry because there were three Rule 6 parties, 18 witnesses, uh, and the inquiry sat over 20 days remotely. Um, so there was a lot for the inspector uh, to consider. The County Council were there as Highway and Education Authority, Cotswold Conservation Board were there as custodians of the Cotswolds AOMB. This was a major development in the AOMB. And there was also a local residence group. 
Um, there was a, or there is, a 2020 core strategy and a Cheltenham plan. So they are, um, uh, on the face of it, there are some allocations, uh, but in, and indeed the inspector found uh, on this Greenfield site, there were conflict with the spatial policies, uh, especially the one that said that any additional uh, uh, urban extensions, if required, would have to come through a local plan review. But one of the features of the case was that the inspector was with the appellants on, on the point that the there wasn't a timely uh, timetable, as it were, for the a plan-led um, review of the of the local plan, and that's the identification of more sites. So it was agreed, unsurprisingly, that this was major development, and so really the ultimate issue was. Um, were there exceptional circumstances, a la MPPF paragraph 177? Um, and this is a careful 31 pages, 127 paragraphs. There's a lot in this. Um, in regard to the AOMB and the impact on the AOMB, the inspector unsurprisingly found 250 homes would represent a fundamental uh, and permanent change in the character of the land. But the un highly unusual feature in relation to this site was said to be the fact that it was surrounded on three and a half sides by residential development. And so development would be seen in the context of the existing um, built parts of, of Cheltenham. So although he was clear that there would be adverse impacts on the AOMB and that the proposal would not conserve and enhance, he said there were site-specific factors which diminished that harm. Less than substantial harm to four heritage assets, uh, all grade two listed buildings. There was an interesting tussle for highway engineers. Um, uh, this was a scheme that had an environmental assessment. Inside there was a chapter on transport. That chapter assessed the impact of the scheme up to 2024, but they were required to go up to 2031 because the local plan period ran that um, for that distance. And there was a great deal of argument about the use of tempo growth rates. So what they had to do was assess the impact of the allocated sites and they, the county was also then applying um, tempo growth rates. So for all those who are interested in that sort of nuance, I recommend reading um, the decision. Uh, the appellants succeeded in, in, in demonstrating that there would not be significant adverse um, impacts in terms of highways. There was also an interesting battle on education. Again, for uh, those who um, are particularly on this issue of permitted admission numbers and whether or not schools had or didn't have capacity. One sometimes hears uh, education consultants and county councils argue that if a school is at 95% of its pan, then it's at capacity uh, or not. And in this case, the appellants were saying that capacity should have represented 105% of pan, but the inspector went with the uh, education authorities 95%. Clear and urgent need for market housing and affordable housing. No substantive evidence of harm to tourism, which was alleged because of the harm to the AOMB. And in terms of the tests in um, 177, so clearly a need. And in terms of the cost and scope of potentially developing outside the designated areas, whether it was AOMB and Greenbelt, he said really there wasn't, uh, very, there was very limited scope um, in this part of the world to do that. And anyway, the plan-led approach wouldn't provide a timely solution. And 
the other crunch point was his description that this was an obvious and logical extension to Cheltenham. So congratulations, Paul Tucker, Casey, yeah. and his team, because uh, they demonstrated exceptional circumstances and got their permission. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Mary. Well done, Paul. And um, in a nutshell, the top from case of Sasha here, this is one of mine, I can recall the main issues, no co- um, de- development in the gap between Topsham and Exeter, which is protected amongst other things for anti-coalescence reasons, doesn't necessarily result in coalescence. Point number one, point number two, Exeter hasn't got a five-year supply and is quite, um, uh, quite well below five years. Uh, point number three, therefore, all the land designated, greenfield area designated under policy CP16, which is their catch-all um, land outside the settlement boundary policy, a, um, a reasonable amount of that has to give way. And therefore, the fact that your contrary to that policy isn't a showstopper. Um, overall, uh, permission granted because uh, there wasn't a lot of harm, a lot, lot of benefit, substantial weight given to both market and affordable separate benefits. And lastly, of some interest uh, beyond Exeter, um, the request for the by the NHS for infrastructure, sorry for um, employment um, related contributions to deal with the demands on um, their budget uh, was um, rejected in line with an earlier case we covered a few a couple of years ago, Wilbur Barton, um, and indeed one or two other cases. There've been a couple of cases going the other way, um, so this is one uh, another one on the side of uh, not giving the um, NHS trust. Uh, in question, the money they need on the basis that um, there are other um, other ways they could get it, and other ways they were getting it. Um, so that's of interest uh, more broadly. Um, with that, um, we will we'll say um, goodbye to you until two weeks from now from ourselves, uh live. And we're now going to play the recording where Paul is going to lead a fascinating interview with um, uh, Minister Julie James. Um, so over to you, Paul, or rather the ghost of Paul, past. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, goodbye. guys. Cheers. Bye-bye. Hello. Uh, good afternoon, Julie James, MS, uh, Minister for Climate Change uh, Climate Change for, for Wales. Uh, what an absolute joy to have you on the show. We've been trying to have you on the show for an awfully long period of time. And uh, more properly, I should say, Pranda, C-tweety. Yeah, Diane, Dioch. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. I'm delighted you're here. Um, good. So, first of all, um, I'll introduce your many achievements in just a moment. But before I do, it's traditional for guests to identify a theme um, for the for the show. What was the theme that you've selected, Julie? I think we went for hometowns, and I can see that you're wearing a scarf. Obviously, I'm a big supporter of the Swans, and uh, count myself as a very uh, proud Jack. So, uh, who are we? Jack Army. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll invite uh, Charlie maybe to join in, join in with song later on. Uh, my, mine is that my hometown is Scarborough. So this is from the last season before Scarborough went bust uh, 11 years ago when they played against Chelsea in the FA Cup and lost. But at least I was there and I bought a scarf. <laughs> so, Julie, you've had a, a remarkable background. Um, you, you toyed with the idea of, uh, of joining us at the bar. Um, so for my own personal career, I'm delighted that you aren't there out competing me uh, at the bar <laughs> uh, before uh, deciding, having travelled around the world as a child, before deciding to come back to Wales and to delve into a career in politics. Uh, and uh, you, you, I think, became a deputy minister back in 2004 and you've had a variety of different portfolios uh, and rising to uh, uh, your, your current eminent status. So well, not first, 2004. I wasn't elected till 2011. So 2014. Oh, right. okay. 2014. <laughs> Wikipedia now needs to be updated. Excellent. That shows the flaws in my research. He does but, that a lot. 
<laughs> right. So, so Julia, I've got a few questions to ask, and then I'm going to ask my fellow panelists to to dive in with some questions that they have. So, the first question that I have, and this is from somebody who's done a number of inquiries in Wales over the years, particularly towards the start of my career. Um, things are different in Wales, but one of the things that's different is that the furtherance of the Welsh language has been at the heart of the planning system in Wales since the English and Welsh planning system split uh, in the, the mid-1990s. And we can see from the census that Welsh language speakers have increased dramatically, so that in the most recent census, we're at the levels that we were in terms of absolute numbers at the turn of, turn of the 20th century. Um, so firstly, how important has the planning system been to securing that increase in the number of Welsh speakers? And do you think the aim of a million Welsh speakers by 2050 is achievable? Um, yes, yeah, so it's uh, it's 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 been very important the planning system, but uh, you know obviously it's one of the of a suite of measures that we use to increase the use of Welsh. Um, so you know, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm talking to a load of professional planners here. I'm very aware, but obviously the planning system isn't about the development of a linguistic policy. So you know, it has it has it's not a direct tool in that sense, but um, the Planning Wales Act has a very specific requirement in it about planning around the Welsh language and being cognizant of the likely effects on the Welsh language of any particular planning policy that you have. We're very, um, well, in general, in the, in the plan system in Wales, we're very keen that our plans take into account our places and our people, and they and they think about the community that they're um, hopefully enhancing with their plans. And much of that will be around making sure that a majority Welsh-speaking community does not have too many people added to it at one time to dilute the effect of the language. That's not to say that those communities shouldn't grow and that people shouldn't go and live there and come in, but obviously a huge influx of people at the same time would make it much harder to keep the language as the, you know, the living language, the first language of that area. So a slow um, you know, proportionate add-ons to our communities. And then the, the second part of that policy is to make sure that the planning system delivers the right kinds of employment land and um, links and so on that enables the young people in particular to stay in those communities because the two big threats are incoming non-Welsh-speaking people. Um, and I can't emphasize enough that incoming people are very welcome, but just not in overwhelming numbers. And then the other big thing is the drain of young people away from those often rural communities to the cities and then the loss of the language as a result of the aging of the community. So we think the planning system has been you know, pretty, pretty pivotal in, in delivering some of that. And then, and then coupled with many of our other policies, of course, which encourage the use of Welsh in schools and the use of Welsh in everyday language uh, and the um, throwing in of uh, little phrases in Welsh uh, in your everyday conversation just has started people being very proud of the language. And the last thing I will say, since we started on a hometown football theme, is that you'll notice that uh, even all the English-speaking fans of the Welsh national team all, uh, all sing the Welsh songs enthusiastically. And that kind of cultural coming together has really helped the language grow as well. Right. It's not just football, it's also rugby, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, well, absolutely. Um, so, in fact, it's interesting because one of the leading things in terms of Welsh policy is community cohesion as being a material consideration, which very much Welsh policy has led. Um, so it, probably following on from that, um, uh, uh, th this, this month there are changes coming into force to change the GDPO in, in, or the Welsh version of the GDPO um, to introduce subcategories in terms of dwelling houses for short-term lets and also houses that aren't being used for sole or main residences. 
Now, there's other second home policies elsewhere in the United Kingdom, but this is a, a change to the GDPO. So can you tell us what the intention is behind those changes? And do you think Wales is leading the way in which other parts of the United Kingdom will follow? Yeah, so this is part of a suite of measures that we've been taking to try and decrease the number of unused homes in, in large parts of, of Wales. Um, one of the very splendid things about living here in Wales is that we live in a very beautiful place. I'm, if I was to look to my left now, I'd be looking at an incredible view over the Bristol Channel. But the downside of that is that large numbers of people want to live there and they've been coming in numbers over COVID and so on, um, as is the case in many beauty spots across the world, just to say. I mean, obviously not just Wales. Um, and I can't emphasise enough that we're not saying we don't want people to do that. We just don't want them to do it in such overwhelming numbers that the communities that they're coming to be part of actually die. Um, so, you know, people who want to come here on holiday want to come to thriving, bustling communities with pubs and shops. They don't want to come to ghost towns where all the little businesses have closed because they can't sustain the winters and so on when there's nobody around. So we've had a real problem with that, that, that lack of a mixed um, a mixed market is that what I want to say what, what I want to call it and so what this is is just another tool in the armory of the local authority in particular to say that in areas where there are very large numbers of either um, tourist accommodation houses or second homes and there's an issue with definitions which I'm sure we could go into at great length um, then it gives them a way to control the increasing numbers. So it doesn't roll it back, but it does control the increasing numbers. And then we have other policies around grant assistance and so on, trying to roll some of the some of it back. So um, just to give you an example, in one area in my own constituency in Swansea, I have a, a row of 100 houses and there's not a single permanent residence in that in that entire row. So, I mean, clearly that's not sustainable. The local pub is under pressure that, you know, it's just really problematic. So if we could get that back to a mixed economy, then everybody would be uh, much, it would be more sustainable and we'd be all a lot happier. So the change of use thing, um, you'll know uh, much better than I how the planning system works here. So we put that in as a national policy and then the local authority can um, do what's called an Article 4 direction, uh, along as, assuming they have the evidence and so on to do that, to take, to, um, to take um, the presumption of an easy change between the use classes away and require planning consent to swap between the two. Uh, and that's just one tool in the armory of local authorities in their attempt to get these sustainable mixed communities in place. Yeah, I mean, it seems seems to me looking at it as, as a really interesting way around what's done elsewhere in Cumbria and Cornwall in terms of local, local occupancy conditions, which is really a huge amount of work for the lawyers as much as anything else, particularly when it comes to definitions of what the local areas are. So it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how that pans out in practice. Um, so next question, slightly mo moving away from the issue of social cohesion to, um, to, to, to the issue of the consequence of the Grenfell fire. So um, following the Grenfell fire, the UK government sought to pursue a pledge from developers to remedy what's called life-critical defects in buildings that have been constructed since 1992, which are over 11 metres tall, albeit without any legal, legally binding agreements from manufacturers. So you announced uh, as the minister on the 7th of October a similar pledge for Wales, and I think nine developers were signed up as of yesterday, but knowing my research on Wikipedia, that's probably vastly more now. Eleven. It's eleven. 11 yes. <laughs> I knew it would be wrong. <laughs> But you also expressed disappointment uh, that the UK government had decided to pursue an England-only approach to the pledge. Can you tell us what the pledge is? And more generally, what does it tell us about the future of the development industry if the UK government pursues an England-only approach in relation to an issue of this importance? 
Yeah, so, I mean, there's no getting away from the fact that we were cross with the UK government for, for their actions here. They acted as if they were the English government, not the UK government. Um, and, you know, that's it was very disappointing. We had robust conversations with the minister at the time about the fact that that was unhelpful. It's clearly unhelpful because the size of the market in Wales is such that if you split England away from Wales, then obviously developers who work in both are going to concentrate on England before they... Um, come to us. We have much less leverage in that sense. And it was even more annoying because we'd actually started talking to the developers in advance of England. And then once they started, of course, we had trouble keeping their attention because the market is so much bigger in England. So I was, I can't hide it, very cross that that was done. We had a change of minister. I'll try to not make too many remarks on how many changes of minister, but anyway. And uh, the next iteration of the ministers were a bit more sympathetic and they worked a bit better with us and helped us to get our developers back around our table, although it had been separated at that point. Um, and we've been successful in doing that. Our, all but three of our developers have signed up now to our pact. Several of them have actually started remediation in the buildings, which I'm delighted to see. Um, we have a whole separate set of uh, stuff going on here in Wales to get um, proper surveys done of all of our buildings. We understand exactly what the problems are. We've always said in Wales that this is about more than the cladding. The vast majority of our buildings don't have a cladding problem. In fact, they have compartmentation um, problems and fire escape problems and um, fire breaks in their walls problems and all sorts. But the cladding itself hasn't been the, the, the major problem. The ACM um, that we did have in Wales has been remediated. So, um, but there are, you know, other forms of cladding are available that are nearly as problematic. So, it, yeah, I was frustrated in the extreme. Um, I have yet to meet the the new um, Leveling Up Secretary of State, but there's a there is a uh, meeting in the diary for can't remember the end of October sometime, and I'm hoping that they will continue to cooperate with us. We've, uh, we've got a pact that's been developed for Wales, but it's largely the same as the English pact. It just references legislation as it applies to Wales and not as it applies to England, because it's slightly different. Um, and we'll have the same legal document backing that up for obvious reasons. It's much easier to have it as similar as possible, but again, referencing Welsh law rather than English law. Um, and you know, I'm very pleased that the developers have got that far. We have a couple of other things going on in Wales that they don't do in England. So we have a buyout scheme here for people who are in severe financial hardship. Um, not as many people have got through that as I'd have liked. So I'm about to review the criteria to widen it out a bit. So we, we know that some people have just been trapped in, in lives that they would have liked to have moved on from uh, and haven't been able to sell up and so on. Um, and we have to work with the UK government uh, on talking to people like lenders and insurance companies, because again, the market here in Wales is small, is too small really um, to, for us to be able to compete with for attention, if you like, for those people, um, unless the UK government does it with us. And the Scots government are in exactly the same position. So they were just as mad as us about the, the you know, separation for no good reason as we saw it. And um, so, yeah, I, I really hope we can continue to work with the UK government because there are a range of other things still going on with those buildings. So we are going into the remediation phase now in Wales. We've got uh, 55 buildings with a complete survey done, 163. Um, we had 219 expressions of interest that had desktop surveys done. We've got... Um, 163 of those needed intrusive surveys. We've got 55 of those completed. So they're obviously on a rolling program. We can start the remediation work now. We're um, working with the developers to make sure that 
really complicated things like making sure that specialist workers and supply chains and equipment and all that sort of thing, uh, that we have a pipeline of work for that. It's very hard to explain to the leaseholders who are all desperate that, there, that you know, e even it's not about the money. Even if I had all the money in the world, which I haven't, but even if we did, actually just there aren't the workers to do the work. There aren't. So we're trying to get a pipeline going so that we've got a continuous supply of skilled workers and whatever to, to do that. So we've been working with the development companies and with our own surveyors to do that. And the government here has paid for the surveys to be done so that we are happy with the outcome of those. And if, and if you like, we own the intellectual property of that. So there's been some interesting, fancy legal footwork about who can rely on it afterwards and so on, which I'm sure you'll all be familiar with. But yeah, so, you know, it's been a lot slower than I'd have liked uh, and certainly a lot slower than the leaseholders would have liked. But I do think we're getting there now. It's it's very difficult whilst trying to be apolitical, not to say very well done in relation to 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 that. And I have to say, having read your press release in relation to uh, to that, your your polite anger uh, shone through. You would have honestly made a fantastic lawyer in terms of the drafting of that particular press release. Um, a d entirely different question now, uh, one one very close to the heart of all the panelists. Um, in England, at public inquiries in relation to residential development, five-year land supply is now the absolute staple. However, um, PPW used to have a commitment to maintain a five-year land supply in Wales, but that's been an approach now that, that uh, Welsh policy has moved away from, and now one judges delivery against the housing trajectory within an up-to-date plan. And that's been said to be a commitment to a plan-led approach and to restrict speculative residential development. So the first question, is it working? And secondly, how do you determine whether it's been a success? Um, it's a little bit too early to say quite whether it's working. Um, it certainly has restricted some of the things we didn't want. So we had a lot of speculative green site development along the M4, for example, or applications for. Um, we are very determined here in Wales to move to sustainable communities, sustainable neighbourhoods, active travel, 20-minute communities, all that kind of stuff, um, away from the build it over there and stick a road up to it and it'll be fine kind of approach, which, you know, I, I do not approve of in any way for a large number of reasons. Um, so, uh, so this approach is to put more focus on the local the local area. We have a we have a, a strategy for how they work out what the local market housing assessment is. It's a complicated calculation that they do. We work with the L, the uh, local planning authorities to understand from them why they've allocated particular sites. So we've done a whole big exercise with them around this site has been earmarked for housing for, you know, since my father was a boy, nobody's ever built any houses on it. What's going on? You know, take it out of your plan, please. Um, some of those have been um, because they have really good reasons why they haven't come forward. They've on contaminated land or there's some other big issue with that. So we have, um, grant aid systems for that. So we have a big um, stalled sites fund and we have a contaminated land fund. So we help our SMEs get over the affordability problem of trying to remediate land before um, they can build. So we've been able to release some of those sites for, for housing development. Others, when you get there and you see a one in three cliff, you're like, mm, I don't think anyone ever was really going to build any houses here. So this is about, in my layman's terms, getting a realistic housing supply in place on land that could realistically be uh, have housing put on it and that would build us the sustainable integrated communities we'd actually like close to the other services and uh, infrastructure. And um, 
I think, as you know, we're, we're trying to put a, a regional strategic plan in place, program in place as well. And this is to link with the strategic plan so that we can help our SMEs understand what the regional infrastructure plans look like and what, therefore, they might be asked to contribute to and so on when, when they're bringing sites. So it is a plan-led approach. It's very much about making sure that we... So we have Future Plan Wales, so we have the national strategic approach, then we'll have the interim regional strategic approach, and then the LDPs coming in underneath. And in that way, we're hoping that we will give more certainty to our house builders, and particularly our um, social house builders as well, as to what the infrastructure looks like, what they might be asked to contribute to, and frankly, help along our negotiations for our various 106s and highways agreements and so on. Um, because we'll have a bit more of a planned understanding of what that might look like. So that's the theory, but it's all very new. We don't have a, a regional plan in place yet. Um, the, the proof of it will be, do we have the right houses in the right place? Because that certainly hasn't been the case up until now. I really do think that this will do that. And we work very closely with our local authorities. We have a very good relationship with them and they have all been very much on board with this. And um We've, you know, I've spoken at the planning conference here in Wales about why this is a good idea. And my, my um, Welsh government planners have spoken to all of the planners and all of the local authorities. It's one of the big benefits of being a small place where everybody kind of knows each other that we can, we can really work together to get this doing. But it's a bit early to say whether it's been successful yet, but we, we live in hope. And, and the exciting message at the end is regional planning is coming back. Uh, within Wales, um, let, let's let's hope the message gets through to other parts of the United Kingdom. Um, so more power to your elbow on that one as well. Um, I was going to ask you about renewables, but I'm going to allow others others to come in. I've got one final question, if I may, um, Julie, and, and that's that's this. M my practice, well, my my chambers are based in the northwest of England, and uh, that's been my home for the last 30 years, and it's had historic and physical links and economic ties to, to North Wales, obviously, but it's always struck me as being odd that the physical links between the North and South of Wales are rubbish, both in terms of rail and in terms of the road. It seems crackers that, you know, I've, I've left inquiries in Flintshire to go and do look at sites in uh, Bridge End and I've had to come down the M6. It always strikes me a bit odd. So if budget wasn't a constraint, what would be the grand project that you would wish to propose to try and meld together those two uh, parts of the principality? Electrified rail is the short answer to that. So actually, we are working on that. Uh, we have a political deal with Plaid Cymru called the Cooperation Agreement, which is a pretty unique kind of way of doing politics, really. So they're not in the government with us, but we cooperate with them on a number of projects. We're a minority government. Um, and one of those projects is looking at the rail links between, um, well, actually between South and North Wales, but actually also between South Wales, West Wales and West Wales and North Wales because that's also an issue. Um, and yes, if, 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 I had, if money was no option, then I'd upgrade the Heart of Wales line and electrify it and pay presto. We would not be building roads. We have a road review underway at the moment. We're about to announce the results of, um, where we're trying to shift the whole assumption away from build a road and everything will be fine. So you'll know that there was a massive controversy when we refused to build the M4 relief road, so-called, across five triple SIs in the Gwent levels. I make no apology for being delighted that we didn't build that. Um, we are looking to improve the public road structure around there, um, the, sorry, public transport structure around there in a big way. And it's been really interesting over COVID, actually, that um, 
the large a large amount of the traffic that was on there was quite clearly people going to public sector jobs at very set hours of the day and because we've moved away from that pattern of working a lot of the congestion has changed hasn't gone away but it's changed so patterns of working are really interesting as well around there we have a target here in Wales to get around 30% of our workforce working from home at least part of the week or working from regional hubs, actually more likely not home part of the week. So uh, we've got a big push to that. But our, our transport strategy, which is called Floy Benewith, which just means new transport strategy in Welsh, um, is, um, is all about uh, reducing journey times um, for Wales and border connections into into from Ireland across Wales and into England. We were very much plugged into the European Union transnational um, network. So we've tried to keep hold of some of that. We have, um, I don't know, how long have we got in this podcast? We've got a lot of issues with uh, border controls and so on now, because actually a very large amount of freight comes across from, from Ireland through Fishguard, Milford Haven, and more particularly um, uh, through Anismon Anglesey. Um, so uh, we've got all kinds of issues with border control posts and all the rest of it, but we've been lobbying the UK government to not move away from the interconnectivity um, west to east through Wales, but also, you know, we do have that north-south um, connectivity issue. It's a very pretty drive, mind, if you're not in a hurry. Oh, it's absolutely glorious. It's, it's completely uh, glorious. One of my favourite drives is down to Slendrod Wells. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, so, Mary, um, firstly, before I ask um, uh, you to ask Julie your question, uh, can you tell us how you've uh, responded to, uh, to Julie's theme? Well, this is difficult for me because I'm a forces brat and I was born in Germany in a military hospital. And when I was a child, I basically my father moved around every 18 months or so. So I didn't really feel um, that I had a kind of hometown. But the nearest um, and in, in Julie's uh, honour, I have to confess that I spent the first five years of my life uh, in in military barracks in Germany. But then my parents had a dream posting to a wonderful place in Wales called Pendine, where Pendine Sands is a 13-mile beach. It's absolutely epic. And so Pendine, uh, I'm going to choose Pendine as my home, hometown. Well, you're very welcome. Croiso. <laughs> your question, Pendine, Mary? Is, Pendine is glorious. That's it where is all absolutely the, um, glorious. That's where the speed trials were done, of course, as well, because in, of the indeed. flat, lovely beach there. Yeah. Indeed. There was a rocket range. My dad worked on the rocket range. So um, back to planning for a minute. Um, my question, Julie, is about the sequential approach that the PPW um, advocates. Um, and I, I want to understand how successful this has been, uh, particularly in the delivery of, of affordable housing. Um, and the other thing that... Uh, PPW uh, advocates uh, is the idea of uh, deselection. Um, you, you mentioned um, your plan-led approach, um, but it, it, PPW is also saying uh, if you've had sites in which are going nowhere, then you should uh, deallocate. And I wondered if that threat, as it were, uh, has also been um, successful in, in ensuring the delivery of, of homes. Um, yeah, so again, these are all relatively new things that we've been doing over the last, you know, four or five years, really. Um, and so it's a little bit early to say, to claim success for some of them. But we have been more successful than we had been previously in getting um, brownfield sites to come forward. 
We've got a, a couple of big kind of exemplar projects running. There's a big one in Kafili, which is an old tar works, which we're working on. Um, and the, we, the Welsh government has uh, tried to put its money where its mouth is. And we've started to develop what we call exemplar sites on land that we owned or we've been able to acquire um, to show what can be done on brownfield sites and what can be done with housing developments of mixed use housing developments with green infrastructure and so on, trying to show people that, you know, you don't have to kind of stack them high and build them cheap to be able to make a, a decent place that people are prepared to buy into. So I'd say that uh, it's a work in progress that we're, um, we're constantly talking to our plan planning authorities about the, the priority ladder, if you like, but you must, must look at suitable, sustainable, previously developed land first, um, and then you can go to underutilized sites, and then you can go to edge of... Um, edge of settlement sites and only then can you look at greenfield and even even then when with greenfield you know we go through a pretty strict process of why does it need to be here what's the infrastructure impact of that what the biodiversity etc is all of that we've also got quite a lot of um kind of active travel requirements and so on. So we want to see sites that are linked properly into non-car um, dependent routes to work and services and so on. And then the um, there's a special justification, as we call it, clause for why on earth something rolled forward that didn't have housing on it before is still in the LDP. We've been quite assertive about LDPs. So um, as the LDP is, has, has been going through its various processes, um, the, the Welsh government planners have not held back at all from putting in their own comments on why this plan does not conform to various parts of the policy. Um, we had a very interesting uh, conversation in Monmouth um, just before, uh, at the beginning of this year, where uh, they were putting all kinds of speculative housing in because there's a big um, demand from people in Bristol to come across to Wales where it's just a bit cheaper and so on. Uh, very public spat with them. I'm not saying that this was any part of it, but in May there was a complete political change of ownership of that council. Had a, a rather better conversation with the new political leadership there. Um, uh, it definitely had some part of it because I think people actually don't don't want their green countryside built on so it definitely had some uh, role to play in that um, and that's been an interesting kind of case study if you like um, and then as I said we've been working hard with our local authorities this isn't necessarily combative we've been working hard with them to understand you know why is this site still in your LDP it's been there for the last you know it was in the unitary development plan for goodness sake it still hasn't got any houses on it what's the problem and then trying to work with them about you know what are you doing with this? Are you really thinking that we'll have housing on it? You know, does it meet any of the new criteria? Why don't you deallocate it? Um, and you'll know that there are lots of complications with that. You know, often people who've got allocated land have used it to borrow money and all kinds of other stuff. So, you know, we do work with them to try and understand what the process for that might be. But we're very keen, you know, that this housing, allocated land for housing, actually gets housing put on it. So it's not Thank just, you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much, yep, Julie. No problem. Um, you, Chris, um, what, how have you responded to Julie's theme and what's your question? Thank you very much, Paul. Hello, Julie. Um, well, my theme is we live in, my family uh, live in England. I grew up in Troitwich, but we're mostly Welsh. My great-grandfather was the Bishop of Landath. Oh, really? Uh, his brother was the head of the Trade Metal Workers Union in Clinetley. My grandfather was called Gwynvor. 
And my sister is a planning officer in Monmouthshire, where oh, I guess she'll be right. she'll be putting her feet up for the next ten years because she's <laughs> in development control. Uh, but uh, leaving that to one side, uh, I think the feeling was that actually the, it, you're, it, it's a Labour council now, but the Conservatives wanted to deliver more affordable housing and they knew they had to do it through cross-subsidisation. But I don't think it was just about people from Bristol, but um, I know what you're saying. Now, my question is, uh, it's always about housing. Uh, the rest of the panel know this. My question is about housing. Back in 1974, you delivered 16,000 houses in Wales. Um, and now it's about four or five thousand. In England, the government introduced the idea of boosting significantly the supply of housing. And just before the pandemic, we got to nearly a quarter of a million new homes with huge numbers of affordable houses cross subsidised, vast numbers. So the question is, you've got rid of five land supply, a lot of your plans are beyond their end date. About half of them are beyond their end date. They haven't got allocations in for the current period. They've been rolled forward, I know. How are you looking to boost the supply of housing in Wales? Yeah, so this is really complicated, isn't it? So we had uh, we have a number of issues in Wales that, you know, bits of England will have and not all of England. And you, you need to break the figures down, really, to get a, a better comparator. Um, so we have land value issues, for example. Um, we don't generate as much land value out of the sale of some of the land as you'd expect. And therefore, we have big problems with delivering affordable housing supply. Often, this starts at 20% and is dropped to 8% by the time the development is up. We've been trying to push all publicly owned land up to 50%. Um, and we've had some success in that over the last nine, nine, 10 months or so, but it's you know relatively new policy. We've got a massive problem in Wales with the state of our special areas of conservation rivers. We've got a huge problem with phosphates and nitrates going into our rivers. We've just passed uh, agricultural pollution regulations, which basically prohibit any development in the flood zones of those rivers until we can sort out what the contribution to phosphate nitrate is. That is holding up a large number of new homes, private and um, social sector homes in Monmouth in particular, actually, they've got one of, they're one of the uh, hits, the USK and the Y coming through there. Um, we're working at some speed now to get nutrient management boards into those rivers and to try and work with the house builders for what we can do to, to make sure that the housing doesn't contribute to the runoff into the, into the rivers. I mean, it will make the houses more expensive, which will exacerbate the problem I just talked about. Um, Monmouth, previous council in Monmouth did have some interesting things uh, about um, bringing forward subsidised social housing by building private sector. But we had a bit of an argument with them, I'm afraid, about Greenbelt and exactly where they were building it. So we won't get into that now. We'd need three hours, I think. But, um, yeah, I yeah, I think I think it was um, we're, we're looking for a, a rather better mix of social and private sector housing. And we're also looking for pepper-potted social housing. So I'm very not keen on a development that has market housing up one end and social housing down the other end with a different entrance and all the kind of divisive stuff you get in communities that goes with that. So there are some other more complicated things going on here. Um, We've had, uh, yeah, so we've, we've got a big push at the moment with our uh, registered social landlords and our councils to up the ante on the amount of uh, homes that they're commissioning direct. 
we put a record amount of investment into that. Um, very, very much higher uh, investment over the last two years. But of course, now we're hitting inflation, aren't we? So we've, you know, just as I managed to lever the investment in, I've now got the problem that the um, intervention grant intervention rate on social housing has gone up really very um I can't remember the figures off the top of my head, but it was certainly about 85,000 per house before. It's up over 100,000 now. It might even be 120,000. So, you know, we're, we're in real problems in terms of how much our money will buy as well. We were slow in Wales to, after the Conservative government allowed us to um, uncap the HRAs, we were a bit slow in Wales getting our act together to do that. So that was a bit behind some of the English regions, not all of them. Um, and so the, if you watch the acceleration curve, it was a year behind. So they are they are ramping it up now. Um, some of the RSLs have done really well this year. Um, and I am still hopeful that we will deliver the 20,000 um, low carbon social homes that we have in our manifesto commitment. But, you know, unless we can do something about the inflationary spiral and some of the issues that we've got on the global supply chain for some of the things we need for that. We are struggling a bit. A lot of them have timber in them. We import about 80% of our timber at the moment, although we're busy planting trees that won't kick in for another 15 years and so on. So I'd say to you, Chris, that we've got a lot of the stuff in place that will ramp it up in future years, but we're, we're still in the ramp up phase for, for some of that. Um, and then the last thing I would say is that the way that the housing market has been working in Wales over the over the lockdown and the last year has really impacted us. Um, so the kind of exodus from the cities and the second home thing and the driving up of prices and so on, that's really caused us a difficulty. Um, so uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the housing market now. I'm old enough, I'm afraid, to remember the various things that went on in the 80s. So I really hope we're not going to get the kind of crash that happened there. But the house price bubble here in Wales has been in here locally to me. The house prices are going up by 47% annually. I mean, it's just unsustainable in any in anyone's well. Just quickly, do you think do you think building more houses and more cross-subsidised affordable houses would help that? Because we've got house price inflation. More, more houses and is there a commitment to solve the phosphate and the nutrient issues because you know in the, the british government are doing that now really quickly are you looking to do the same yeah yeah absolutely we've got to solve it we've got to solve it to, to stop the rivers dying and we've got to solve it to stop our you know our house building and our various industries having real problems of course we've got to solve it so we, we're going at pace with our nutrient management boards and all the rest of it we're working with the uh, two water companies in wales to understand you know what they're um, overflow outages look like and all the rest of it. So yes, there's a huge piece of work going on about trying to solve that. Um, and yes, absolutely, all the stats show you that the more social housing you built, weirdly and counterintuitively, the more private housing you get. So um, we absolutely accept that. So that's why we've been ramping up the investment to do that. Um, but we've got some other stuff going on in the housing market that's you know gone against us. So I think if we hadn't had COVID, you would have seen a big ramp up in those two years. And that's really... You know, that, that caused everyone problems, isn't it? And it's about how we're ramping up, you know, what the ramp up looks like afterwards. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the um, what the stats look like at the end of this year now, because they're wobbling about all over the place at the moment. So, um, we've, so for example, we've got um, fewer starts, but more completions this year, which doesn't make any sense to me, but there we are. That's where we are. So, um, 
yeah, we'll see. We'll see where that goes. But yes, we're, we're really keen to do that. And, and we do watch the English regions really carefully to see if there's any learning. I, I talk to the Scots government all the time about similar problems. And actually, we've been in touch with Cornwall um, County Council because they have a large number of the same problems that we have. So just trying to understand, you know, how that looks there. Similar kind of skewed property market. So Cornwall has all the same problems as we have. We have very low land values in some parts of Wales and ridiculously high housing bubbles in other parts and, you know, really big problems about none of the houses being in the right place for the right communities and so on. But yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we certainly don't think we've got all the answers, Chris. We've, we've tried to set um, our local authorities into the best position to bring forward the best kind of housing in their area and at a speed that our markets can manage, you know, our SMEs can actually build. We don't have that many um, volume house builders in Wales, four of them really, um, and they only ever work in the southeast. Uh, and last but by no means least, the, the man who's offering all sorts of opportunities for uh, inappropriate comments, bull and horns and all sorts of things, so I'll move away from that. Uh, Charlie, uh, how have you responded to the theme as if it's not blindingly obvious? And then secondly, what's your question for Julie? Thanks, Paul. Uh, good afternoon, uh, Julie. Well, uh, my, my late father, though he was born in Liverpool, was actually ethnically 100% Welsh. And he used to tell me um, that his great grandmother didn't speak English. She was a sole Welsh speaker. Um, uh, but by the time I came along in 1980, the banners lived in Birmingham where um, the Commonwealth Games have just been held, the, the famous bull, which I have to sit in the, on the side of the screen. So if I sit in the centre, it looks like I'm wearing devil horns, which yep. is rather unfortunate. <laughs> um, brainchild of uh, former guest on, on this show, Andy Street, the, the mayor of the West Midlands. Now, uh, Julie, I've got a couple of questions relating to um, the balance between um, housing and the environment. And, and the first one is, is um, it's your portfolio uh, as, a, as a minister, as Paul outlined, is, is impressively wide. Uh, and includes both housing and climate change. Uh, and Wales, like the rest of UK, uh, as we know, is experiencing both a housing crisis and a climate crisis. But often it's said that the solutions to one exacerbate the other and, and vice versa. So uh, can you tell us, to our viewers, what's your strategy for dealing with both these crises simultaneously in a way that's financially viable and deliverable swiftly? Yeah, so we, we think it's a real mistake to, to put them in in, uh, in combat with one another. I think if you look at either of them in isolation, you end up with a, a situation which really does not help. So I think in all the things I've been talking about, you can see that we talk about sustainable communities, we talk about 20-minute neighbourhoods, we talk about active travel, we talk about making sure that people don't have to get in a car every time they go out of their house, that they have a house that they can heat uh, at a reasonable cost using, you know, decarbonized energy where at all possible and so on. So, you know, I'm not suggesting for one minute that these things are easy, but we can use the planning system to start to build in all of those kinds of fit for the future modeling that we have. And we know, you know, that where we have had sort of build them fast and stack them, stack them up type developments in Wales, that people there have real problems with fuel poverty and, you know, other issues, um, you know, that they can barely afford to run the car to the work and all the rest of it. And we've had really interesting conversations with people who live in kind of landlocked, new build places where they've got to get in a car to go anywhere about how restrictive that is for their employment uh, opportunities and for their educational opportunities. And that's not really a living community that you can expect to grow old in and so on. So we're very keen in, indeed 
to look at the kind of viability of the whole place when you're putting these housing um, allocations in so that the housing contributes to a community, that these aren't just isolated developments of people who never speak to each other and just get in a car and drive off every morning. Um, because we know that people who live in those kinds of communities pull much less resource out of other public services because they're much happier, healthier, cohesive communities. And I do really think that you can use the planning system to, to get a net benefit for biodiversity and to manage flooding and to get effective green infrastructure and to get a mix of housing types. So we always talk about mixed developments. We know we want to learn the, you know, the lessons of the past. So we don't want single tenure housing developments of, of either sort. Um, in Wales, and we want different densities. We want, you know, good high density communities in the appropriate places, and we want obviously lower density, good green infrastructure in some of our communities. And I spoke earlier about the Welsh language issue here as well, and that whole issue about growing our communities at the appropriate speed to make sure that they retain the viability that they would otherwise lose. And we can, you, you can see that all over England, in fact, where you've got, you've got a, a development the size of the village on the side of the village, and the whole village just you know, starts to crumble, really. So, um, so we're really keen to make sure that we have a proportionate response to that, and that we don't have just exponential sprawled growth all over our countryside. And, you know, frankly, do away with our unique selling point, which is that, you know, Wales is beautiful and very biodiverse. Here, here. Well, thank you. Well, in a similar vein, the uh, Oxfordshire County Council yesterday announced that it's not going to participate in the government's new investment zones programme in England. Uh, and its leader, Liz Lefman, said, and I'm quoting her, we consider that the deregularisation of planning controls and reductions in environmental protection, which appear to be a condition of any investment zone, are incompatible with our net zero carbon aspirations and our commitment to protect and enhance biodiversity and environmental quality, as stated in our vision. Uh, do you agree with her that the government's gone too far in sacrificing environmental protection for the sake of growth? I certainly do. And I don't think it's necessary either. I think it's a, I think it's one of those myths, really, that, you know, that you find a March for Trillery butterfly and you hold up the development for five years or, you know, whatever. I mean, that's that's just, you know, those those are urban myths, in, in my opinion, anyway. Um, and, you know, people... You, you can you can build a sympathetic development in a biodiverse area. You don't have to um, decimate one to get the other. And well, you know, I don't want to be too political in this program, but I'm not sure that announcing that you're going to do a bonfire of the planning laws um, from the central government really works, because pretty much everyone is going to say, "What a great idea!" Not where I live, though. So I'm pretty sure that when it actually comes down to not where I live, that they're going to have real problems with, with that. Very, very few people don't want any planning controls where they actually live. Um, they just think it's a good idea for other folk. So, you know, and, we, and the investment zones, there's a whole pile of other problems as well. So I come here from Swansea. I don't know if any of you know Swansea, but it has a huge development just outside it called the Enterprise Zone. That was a low tax, low thing, come here, whatever. And it didn't work. All that happened was it displaced things from anywhere else. And as soon as the tax incentives were removed, they all disappeared again, leaving us with an absolute wasteland of ridiculously low, well, rubbish buildings and all the rest of it. And then we got an out-of-town retail park, which probably killed the city centre. So I'm not impressed by that. <laughs> I think sometimes it's important to understand that these things have been tried elsewhere and, and there are reasons why they didn't work in the first place. So we would take some real 
persuading that that was a good plan for us. And I mentioned, I think, in an earlier answer, we've had this conversation about the free ports. Mm. We're not we're not keen on that either for exactly the same reason. But we've negotiated with the UK government a slightly different set of things for a free port here in Wales, which includes our fair work um, arrangement. So we don't want a low wage um, economy, you know, built on exploitation, frankly. Um, and we, we don't want barracks type housing for people who are coming in to do work. And we don't want um, this kind of um, displacement investment, if I can call it that. Um, but, you know, there are some things you can do with a free port structure that are really helpful to us. And we certainly don't want our ports not to be able to, we don't want Hollyhead not to be able to compete with Liverpool for obvious reasons. So, you know, we've had to look at that. And so we'll do the same thing with the investment zones. We'll see what exactly is proposed, exactly where it's proposed, you know, what do the incentives look like? Do we think that's just going to displace things from our city centres? We're very keen on a town first, town centre first policy here for all our development, you know, trying to get life back into our town centres as, as the whole retail universe is turned topsy-turvy and, you know, the big shops all disappear, what on earth is going to happen in our town centres? So, yeah, I mean, you can hear I'm not a fan. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Paul, back to you. Um, so, yes, th thank you very much in indeed, uh, 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 Julie. That's been absolutely fascinating. And since everybody else has been claiming their, their Welsh uh, ancestry, <laughs> I'm going to do the same. So if you just allow me to, to do this. Um, so I I'm going to claim ro Welsh royalty <laughs> rather than anything else. So if you go into the, the uh, entrance at Twickenham, on the left-hand side behind me, you'll see this rugby shirt. That's my great-uncle Ben Ben Grono's uh, oh, shirt. Oh, is it really? He was the first man to kick off for Wales at, at Twickenham, the first man to kick off for anybody at Twickenham. And he captained Wales at both uh, Rugby Union and also Rugby League. Um, and I used to play with his caps at my Uncle, Gwen, uh, my uncle Gwyn's knee as a child. So I'm claiming Welsh royalty on that well, basis. So you should as well. And just to say, and this is a very Welsh conversation now, we're almost certainly related then because I'm related to the Gronos on my mother's really? side. So we're probably because, yeah. Everyone in Wales is related by the time you get down to fifth cousin. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, on that basis, thank you, Julie. <laughs> lovely to see you all.